Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week, I'm reviewing the much-beloved 80s classic, the horror anthology throwback to EC Comics collections which had starred such memorable characters slash hosts as the Crypt Keeper, the Witch, and the Vault Keeper. And with this movie, a collaboration of two horror icons... The two visionaries attempt to give the world their own version of this ghoulish storyteller in a little film called Creepshow. As you've probably wondered, and many have asked, uh, the fact that I haven't reviewed Creepshow is a huge blind spot for this podcast. It's a blind spot that I completely own up to, um, but it's one that I hope to rectify with this episode. So what's the deal with Creepshow? Why was it a thing, and how does it hold up? Well, the reason people talk about Creepshow first and foremost is that it's the first collaboration between Stephen King and Night of the Living Dead's auteur, George Romero. Romero will later go on to direct Stephen King's The Dark Half, starring Tim Hutton, but here is the more popular and better-known collaboration. The fact that these two horror giants collaborated, it's worth noting. It's such an important milestone in cinema history, and I applaud that they opted for an anthology movie rather than a straightforward narrative. It makes for such a different and rich theatrical experience. But I think that when people think of Creepshow, they think of the concept of Creepshow, meaning the creep and the comic book quality of it. Nowadays, comic book movies are the highest grossing genre of movies. They're ubiquitous. But as ubiquitous as they are, they only represent the superheroic side of comic books. Once upon a time, the best-selling comic books weren't about superheroes at all. Instead, creepy tales to terrify were the ones that flew off the shelves. So the movie reflects a type of comic book that sadly doesn't exist anymore. And without that knowledge, I wonder how Creepshow and its sequel, Creepshow 2, holds up. For me, I love the comic book aspect. I love the introduction. With Stephen King's son, author Joe Hill, as our hapless victim of a tyrannical parent, John Carpenter's favorite, Tom Atkins. I love the Halloween-themed setting, and when Joe Hill looks over to see the creep at the window, I love it. Like many eight-year-old boys, if we saw the creep at the window, we wouldn't have been scared. We would have been seeing an old friend. The movie morphs briefly into a very fun animated sequence, something which I wish movies would choose to do more often. From there, the movie launches into the first of its vignettes, Father's Day. Now, before I get into the specifics of the movie, I would like to read a, um, an email from Bryant. So, um, Bryant writes, Still working my way through older episodes of your show and want to send a few thoughts your way. No episode for The Breathing Method? Bummer. That's actually my favorite of the novellas in different seasons. Haunting stuff and the mysterious nature of the club is a riddle I don't ever want answered. I love the Nosferatu episode. It's my least favorite Joe Hill book today, but that's not an insult. It's like picking your least favorite puppy. And there's basically no such thing as a bad one. But if I had to pick one, that'd be it. Have you read Wraith, the comic book prequel? I like that a lot, too. There's a good Easter egg reference to Owen King's novel, Double Feature, in there, among other goodies. I have read it, it and it's a lot of fun. I like uh, Joe Hill's um, comic book work. 
Regarding apt pupil the novella, I understand your point about the coincidence of the Jewish patient being the pivot point for the climax to swing upon. From a storytelling standpoint, I guess that it's sort of weak. But it works for me really well, and I'll tell you why. Because it makes me think that if, in the world of the story, some sort of major coincidence like that had not happened, things might have gotten worse and worse and worse. It makes me feel as if there might be numerous Bowdens and Dusanders out there in the world behind closed doors, plotting horrid things, and there can't possibly be enough coincidences in the world to bring them down. It makes the monsters seem that much more real to me. Regarding the Apt Pupil movie, I've never been able to get invested in that one. It isn't a bad movie, but it never really goes dark enough to feel genuine to the source material. McKellen is great, but beyond that I can't fully engage with it. Nowhere is the problem more evident than the watered-down ending. I'd have opted for the original ending and had Todd go up on the tower. I'd have him pull back the bolt on his rifle, take aim, and then I'd have to cut the credits. Did you know that was technically the second movie based on Apt Pupil? The first, which starred Ricky Schroeder and Nicole Williamson, lost its financial lost its financing during production. Filming halted and never resumed. I'd love for somebody to make a documentary about that and use whatever footage they got, which, if I remember correctly, was about two-thirds of the story. Probably never going to happen, though. That's interesting. I had no idea about that. So pleased to hear that you're a Christine fan, particularly of the movie. I love that movie. I love John Carpenter in general, though, though so that's no surprise. If you've never gone for a drive while that soundtrack is playing, I highly recommend doing so. I can't get myself too worked up about the Pet Cemetery movie. Some of it works well, and I especially enjoyed you singling out Dale Midkiff's great interaction with the child actors, but a lot of it does not. Denise Crobsey left Star Trek for this? No idea if she actually did, but if so, more's the pity. That novel is really primed and ready to be remade into a second film, one which takes itself a bit more seriously and has a top-notch director at the helm. Whoever that ends up being, I beg you, include the Wendigo scenes. Speaking of directors, I don't mean this to be snarky as it's going to sound, but I have to say it. One of my joys in listening to the podcast now is the suspense of wondering whether you figured out that it's Kerry Fukunaga and not Corey Fukunaga. Sorry, had to be said. Speaking of regrets, boy does it bum me out that he dropped out of that project. That project being it. And I know I'm super guilty of butchering his name on a regular basis. Sidebar, I'd love to know what you think of the second season of True Detective. I don't get all the hate for it personally. I loved it. Not as much as the first season, but quite a lot all the same. I'd like to nominate Taylor Kitsch to play Stu Redman, Rachel McAdams to play Jesse Burlingame, not for the reasons you think, um, Vince Vaughn's to play Richie Tozier, and Colin Farrell to play Jamie Morton. I wish I'd love the Talisman the way so many King slash Straub fans do, but the last time I read it, I thought it was a huge mess. It doesn't read like either King or Straub, but like some ill-advised third author's voice. I found the idea of a child going on a cross-country journey to be a stretch, too. Wouldn't somebody prevent that somehow? I mean, I could roll with the idea if the novel was a little more fantastical and a little less grounded, but it isn't, so I can't. Or maybe I did just a bad job of reading it last time. I did love the novel in high school, so maybe this is a me problem. I was glad that you talk about Straub a little bit during the podcast. I think he gets overlooked by too many King fans when it's time to talk about these novels rolls around. The black and white version of The Mist makes me grumpy. I don't entirely know why. I think it's got something to do with artificiality. The movie wasn't filmed in black and white, and draining of it of its color seems like a cheat to me in some way. Great movie, though. I've been in a few arguments with King fans who hate it for changing the end of the novella, and I expect to get in a few more of them before my time on Earth is over, which, when it happens, will hopefully not be at the hands of those spiders. Mercy! You reviewed Mercy, you poor man. It's a, terrible, it's a terrible movie, obviously. Did it feel to you like they got to the end of the film and ran out of money, so they just threw a black spot onto things, called in a monster, and then ran the credits? Awful. And yet I own the DVD. The Long Walk. 
insert vague sounds of disapproval here. I love that novel, but I also enjoy that you aren't afraid to go against the grain when it comes to King Community Givens. That's a good quality in a critic, and I know I've found a worthy critic when I still enjoy and benefit from their work while disagreeing with it. No Roadwork? Bummer. I love that novel. It's my number two in the Bachman books, Behind the Long Walk. Makes me very happy that you're a fan of Arnold's The Running Man. It's a cheesy movie, sure, but it's aging well in some ways. It's, as you point out, so of its time that I can now serve. it can now serve as a commentary on that time. And yet, it's also forward-thinking in some ways. I think it's a solid piece of socio-sci-fi, and as such, it's very worthwhile. I need to get on that. I need to get that on Blu-ray. By the way, I've got more to say about The Running Man, but I'm going to send that in a separate email. I hope that these emails are reaching out to you, and if they're not so long, they're bumming you out. Regarding it, I think this is King's best novel. I don't have anything to add what you've said, really. I will say that the preteen sewer gangbang scene just doesn't really ruffle my feathers. I recognize that it probably should, but it doesn't. I mean, look, preteens have sex sometimes. They probably don't line up and train each other very often, or if they do, they probably don't do it. So, an attempt to escape an ages-old supernatural evil. So, as a plot point, I do think it's dubious at best, but I can give it a pass. I don't get any sense that King intended it salaciously, and even if he did, it doesn't read that way. I will say, though, that I strongly disagree with your idea that the scene might be best off being eliminated from future editions. I probably do agree that an editor sometime in 1985 or ought to have had to eliminate it, but if you cut it out now, it would bring entirely too much attention to the scene, and you just know that a lot of attention would be extremely negative. The last thing you want to do with that scene is turn into something for people to fetishize, and removing it might do exactly that. That's a really good point. I didn't even think of that. Um, but I'll go on record again saying that I think the scene is disgusting. Further regarding it, I can't remember whether this happened during my first read of the novel or during a reread. I think it was the first read, but I can't be sure. But I've got a great memory associated with reading it. I was in high school circa 1990, and I went outside to sit on the curb outside our house and read. Why I did this, I do not know. I hate being outside. I hated it less back then, though, and sometimes went outside to read on the curb. What can I say? It's just how it was. Anyway, this time I sat there and read, and at some point I looked up across the street, saw a little black kitten sitting there looking back at me. I looked back down, started reading again, at some point I looked back up a second time to see if the kitten was still there. It was now in the middle of the road. We didn't get much traffic, so this was no cause for concern. I watched it for a little while, and it watched me, then I went back to reading. After a while, I looked up a third time for an update, and the kitten was almost within arm's reach. I looked, it looked back, I went back to reading. After a while, I stopped reading on account of the kitten that climbed in my lap and lay down in the middle of my book. That was how I got my first cat. She's long gone now, but it's a very happy memory. I guess we're about to fight, but I don't think Tim Curry is all that great in the It miniseries. In fact, I'd single that out as one of the most overrated performances ever given. Not that he's bad, he certainly isn't. He's good, just nothing more than that. Not for me, at least, but I've talked to so many people who disagree with me on that subject, and I'm convinced that this must be another me problem. I think that's maybe because I just hate the movie so much. It's awful, especially in comparison to the novel. The acting is bad. Don't get me started on Harry Anderson's Richie Tozier. You wouldn't like me when I talk about Harry Anderson's Richie Tozier. The movie looks cheap as hell. The story is so hollowed out that it's barely even still there. I like Tim Curry mildly, and I like a few individual moments, and I sort of like the musical score, but apart from that, I get nothing for it. I don't think Curry's performance will be a high bar to hurdle at all. I do give a big thumbs up to the Brian Cranston idea, but I was down for Will Poulter too, because it was so unexpected. Unexpected is probably a good way to go with a remake. We're on the same page with Eyes of the Dragon, I just don't think there's much right there. But a lot of people love it, and I do not in any way resent them for it. All right, so that's Brian, uh, Bryant. Um, so Bryant, thanks again for another email and feel free to continue sending emails uh, my way.
All right, everyone. Um, now we have. I'm gonna just get back to um, to to, to creep show. Uh, so let's just again. I, I started talking about the introduction. Let's let's kind of double back um, and talk a little bit more about the introduction. So I mean, how can you not smile at the beginning of this movie? The Halloween-esque intro closing in on the jack-o'-lantern in that window. You know, as we make our way into the house, we get an intentionally over-the-top dramatic display of a child-parent conflict. Tom Atkins is on one end of the conflict with Joe Hill himself on the other. And I love the fact that not only is Stephen King's son in this movie serving as the anchor for the stories themselves, but the idea that Joe Hill will grow up to write 20th Century Ghosts, Heart-Shaped Box, Lock and Key, Horns and Nosferatu gives this scene an extra touch. The scene is absurd in all the right ways. The drama level is cranked up to 10, with Atkins coming across as um, villainous as a Batman villain, and the mother hilariously, anxiously, um, just she's over the top uh, with her anxiety coming out uh, over whether or not the windows downstairs are, are, are open. The first 30 seconds tells us everything that we need to know about the rest of this movie and how we should navigate our way through it. Simply put, we should have fun. Don't be the stuffy critics of establishment like Tom Atkins, George Romero is saying. Be like Joe Hill. Get swept away in the monsters that sit upon the shelves of his room. Get lost in the comics that offends Atkins so much. And King perhaps channels his darkest desires at the man who had abandoned his family years before when he has his own son utter, I hope you rot in hell, directed at the man downstairs who declared that abuse was the reason God made fathers. There's a fearful symmetry to the idea that King paints this scene with his son who stands as proof to himself that he can be a better man than the one that had abandoned him so long ago, that perhaps Joe's existence, and Naomi and Owen's as well, is enough but surrounded by his monstrous friends, Dracula, Godzilla, Rodan, the Hulk, and others, he gives into his more primal revenge fantasies, carried out by someone who truly loves him, who is truly there for him, much in the way that the monsters and the ghouls were there for King when he had been abandoned. And it's here where King and Romero introduce us to their own monster, a character inspired by the EC storytellers whose most famous member would wind up becoming the Crypt Keeper due to HBO's late 80s massively popular adaptation of Tales from the Crypt. The creep at the window with the lightning flashing behind him set against the giant moon. It's a wonderful touch. Nothing about it looks real. I mean, we have we have lightning and a giant moon. No clouds in the sky, but it doesn't have to look real. It's spooky fun. And it's meant to put a little smile on your face. Much like the one that Hill wears upon his. This tells us that the movie is going to be a celebration of the horror genre and the things that go bump in the night. It's allowing us to wrap our arms around it in a big hug. From there, we get the animated introduction, which again is a lot of fun. It's a children's movie for adults. We get beautiful illustrations with creepy music in the background, which brings us to our first introduction, Father's Day. So from Wikipedia... Nathan Grantham, the, the miserly old patriarch of a family whose fortune was made through bootlegging, fraud, extortion, and murder for hire, is killed on Father's Day by his long-suffering spinster daughter Bedelia. Bedelia was already unstable as the result of a lifetime spent putting up with her father's incessant demands and emotional abuse, which culminated in his orchestrating the murder of her sweetheart. 
The sequence begins in 1980, when the remainder of Nathan's descendants, including Nathan's granddaughter Sylvia, his great-granddaughter, his great-grandchildren Richard Cass, and Cass's husband Hank, get together for their annual dinner on the third Sunday in June. Bedelia, who typically arrives later than the others, stops in at the cemetery outside the family house to lay a flower at the gravesite and drunkenly reminisce about how she murdered her insufferable, overbearing father. When she accidentally spills her whiskey bowl bottle in front of the headstone, it seems to have a reanimating effect on the mortal remains interred below. Suddenly, Nathan's putrefied, maga-infested corpse emerges from the burial plot in the form of a revenant who has come back to claim the Father's Day cake he never got. Before obtaining his long-desired pastry, the Revenant avages, avenges himself on Bedelia and the rest of his idle, scheming, money-grubbing heirs, killing them off one by one, which includes some apparent supernatural abilities, such as making a heavy tombstone move by will. So analysis. The first thing I want to point out is that this features Alan Pangborn himself, Ed Harris, who also appeared in a television adaptation of The Stand. We get the backstory of Bedelia through clever storytelling techniques that could alienate some viewers, but techniques that I love nevertheless. The comic book split screens, the action splash panels, the framed cameos of Bedelia's father. After the flashback of her father's murder, we get his gruesome return in a public service announcement for the importance of cakes. Don't ever let a special moment pass you by without providing a cake for a loved one. He might just return as a rotting ghoul until he gets his peace. And how awesome is it that we have a dead body that has such a sweet tooth he comes back from the grave? And when we get to the shenanigans of Ed Harris and his girlfriend, which features the best worst dancing that I've ever seen, I can't help but wonder if this is what King thinks humans do for fun. It's so bizarre and unattached from any reality that it looks like an alien was piecing together the social behaviors of a species it just can't truly understand. From there, uh, Nathan just murders his children, serves one head on a planter, and calls it a cake. And that's all she wrote. So we have Stephen Kingisms. Uh, I think the biggest one here is the catchphrase, which is, I want my cake. Up next is The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Based on the short story Weeds, Jody Verrill, played by Stephen King himself, a dim-witted backwoods yokel thinks that a newly discovered meteorite will provide enough money from a local college to pay off his $200 bank loan. As the meteorite is too hot to touch, he douses it with water, causing it to crack open and spew a glowing green substance that comes in contact with his skin. He then finds himself being overcome by a rapidly spreading plant-like organism that begins growing on his body. Jordy is eventually cautioned by the ghost of his father not to take a bath, but when itching from the growth on his skin becomes unbearable, Jody succumbs to the temptation and collapses into the bathwater. By the next morning, Jordy and his farm have been completely covered with the dense layers of the hideous alien vegetation. In despair, he reaches for a shotgun and blows the top of his head off. A radio weather forecast announces that heavy rains are predicted and the audience is left with the dire expectation that this will accelerate the spread of the extraterrestrial plant growth to the surrounding areas. Analysis. For your consideration, the one-two punch of Stephen King movies that you should probably watch back-to-back -back is this short and Maximum Overdrive. These two cinematic endeavors paired together illustrate the range of Stephen King's acting and his directing. And the childish goofiness of this entry makes me wonder if 
This is how Stephen King really sees his works. If that's the case, then I have dedicated the last two years of my life to reviewing the works of Village Idiot. I hope to God that's not the case. That's the scariest thing about this movie, by the way. Granted, it's not supposed to be scary, and the goofiness is endearing. Um, but no, um, you know, I mean, it, it isn't supposed to get under your skin. I mean, which it does, um, as much as the weeds get under Jody Verrill's, Jordy Verrill's. Um, there's just something about the body horror genre that makes us more vulnerable than many of the other subgenres in the horror catalog. And aside from a few entries, I Am the Doorway, Dreamcatcher, um, are the ones that stand out. King doesn't really produce a lot of this genre. But still, at the end of the day, it's a fun little story that focuses on the poor life of one dumb man before teasing the end of the world as weeds will make their way across the land, beginning first with good old Castle Rock. Castle Rock, sorry. Um, so Stephen Kingisms, we have another catchphrase. You lunkhead. Okay, up next is something to tide you over. Richard Vickers, a vicious, wealthy psychopath whose jocularity belies his cold-blooded murderousness, stages a terrible fate for his unfaithful wife Becky and her lover Harry Wentworth by separately luring them out to a secluded beach property and then, at gunpoint, burying them up to their necks below the high tide line. He explains that they have a chance of survival. If they can hold their breath long enough for the sand to loosen once the seawater covers them, they could break free and escape. Vickers sets up closed-circuit TV cameras so he can watch them die from the comfort of this well-appointed beach house. However, Richard is in for a surprise of his own when the two lovers he murdered return as a pair of waterlogged, seaweed-covered revenants. Second time revenants uh, is, is used uh, in the Wikipedia summaries here. He tried to shoot them, but they remind him, You can't shoot us dead, Richard, because we're already dead. The final scene reveals that Richard is now the one buried in the beach, facing the approaching tide, and the sight of the two sets of footprints disappearing into the surf. While the tide is rising, he laughs hysterically, his sanity shattered by the experience, and screams, I can hold my breath for a long time. The frame freezes into animation, and the flipping comic pages stop upon the title of the next story, one of the longer entries in it nearly 30 minutes. Stephen Kingisms. Um... Oh, I'm sorry, I put that in the wrong place. Uh, but yeah, Stephen Kingisms. Uh, if you if you can hold your breath, this is a Stephen Kingism. Um, but anyway, so now going a little bit backwards. Now let's talk about the analysis here. So right up, Sam Malone and Frank Drebin, ladies and gentlemen. Aside from the fact that two comedy legends get to share screen time together, I just want to make note that these are two incredible dramatic actors as well. Just watch Leslie Nielsen in this movie. He's one of the finest actors in this collection that doesn't ham up his performance. In fact, he underplays every line and lets his velvet voice carry the weight. In fact, he sometimes drops his voice so low, he's speaking below a whisper, and it's an incredible technique. I mean, there's a reason why The Naked Gun was as popular as it was. It wasn't because he was a comedy genius, but he was. But the reason why The Naked Gun worked as well as it did is because he understood what was needed in any given scene as an actor. And of course, the key to success with the naked gun in Airplane before it was that he never plays up the comedy. He played it straight while everything around him was cartoonish. But anyway, sorry guys, this isn't a Leslie Nielsen podcast. It's just that whenever he shows up, I just want to talk about him. He was a childhood hero. 
Um, as was Ted Danson. Uh, Cheers was a staple in my house, and I'm so glad to have seen Ted Danson continue to evolve into his elder statesman role as an actor with George Christopher in Bored to Death and Hank Larson from Fargo Season 2 being two great examples of incredible work. Um, but actually, in the in the story here, I need to keep corralling myself, um, but Danson, he doesn't have a lot to do here except react. And he does a great job with it. It's a fun revenge story with Nielsen uh, giving a very natural form of waterboarding to punish his adulterous wife and lover. I should also note that I love some of the flourishes that Romero gives this scene, like when Danson returns from the dead and walks past the fish tank. The perspective is through the fish tank, so even on dry land, water is still vital to the creepiness of this scene. And it keeps intercutting to Leslie Nielsen, who is taking a shower with only his head visible above the spray, mirroring the death of his enemies. It's a fun, just a fun little story with a gurgling waterlogged seaweed draped green blood oozing corpses inviting their victim to the beach between father's day declaration of i want cake and something to tide you over is we want you to come to the beach king is just raining on everyone's idea of fun up next is the crate based on the short story the crate a college custodian mike drops a quarter and finds a wooden storage crate hidden under the basement stairs for 148 years he notifies a college professor dexter stanley of the find the two decide to open the crate and it's found to contain an extremely lethal creature resembling a yeti or abominable snowman which despite its diminutive size promptly kills and entirely devours mike before leaving behind his only boot Escaping, Stanley runs into a graduate student, Charlie Garrison, who is skeptical and investigates. The crate has been moved back under the stairs, and Garrison is killed by the creature as he examines the crate. Stanley flees to inform his friend and colleague at the university, the mild-mannered Professor Henry Northrup. Stanley, now traumatized and hysterical, babbles to Northrup that the deadly monster must be disposed of somehow. Northrup sees the creature as a way to rid himself as, uh, of his perpetually drunk, obnoxious, and emotionally abusive wife, Wilma, whom he often daydreams of killing. He contrives a scheme to lure her near the crate, where the beast does indeed maul and eat her. Northrup secures the beast back inside its crate, then drops it in a nearby lake where it sinks to the bottom. He returns to assure Stanley that the creature is no more. However, it is subsequently revealed to the audience that the beast has escaped from its crate, and is in fact alive and well. So analysis. There's something about ancient crates that will just never get old. J.J. Abrams has built his filmmaking philosophy around it, the mystery box. What's literally is what we get here. Um, what's inside the box wrapped in chains? The box from an Arctic expedition from the 1800s. Who knows what's in the box, but you can't wait to find out. So when they do open up the box, it's up to the characters to do the things that we would love to do and love not to do. For one, while we might want to open the crate, we certainly wouldn't want to stick our hands into the damn thing, which is what happens to hilarious effect. The crate creature doesn't look great, but whatever. The effects that Savini provides to its victims are visceral and make up for the cheesiness of the creature itself. Also, in the world of CGI overload, I like the idea of a practical monster. Here's the deal, though, with the crate. It's too long. It's just, it's too long. I, I get that Hal Holbrook wants to murder his wife, but it just takes too long for him to get the creature to eat her. And I was just bored as I was watching it. And lastly, we have They're Creeping Up On You. Upson Pratt is a cruel, ruthless businessman whose misophobia has him living in a hermetically sealed apartment controlled completely with electric locks and surveillance cameras. During a particularly severe lightning storm, he finds himself looking out over the concrete canyons of New York City as a rolling blackout 
travels his way. When it hits his apartment tower, the terror begins for Mr. Pratt, who now finds himself hapless when his flat becomes overrun by hordes of cockroaches. As the cockroaches begin to overrun him, he locks himself inside a panic room, only to find the cockroaches have already infested the room as well. With no way to escape, he is swarmed upon by the roaches, which induce a fatal heart attack. Later, as electricity returns to the building, Pratt's corpse is shown in the panic room, now devoid of roaches. However, Pratt's body soon begins to contort, and roaches grotesquely burst out of his mouth and body, re-enveloping the panic room. So analysis. This is a one-man performance by E.G. Marshall, who played Ev Hillman in the Tommyknockers adaptation. And this is an icky, itchy movie that's going to get under your skin. It's basically the story of Scrooge without any moral redemption. In the end, this Scrooge is infested with cockroaches, then in a memorable scene, um, bursts from his skin. It's gross, and it's the perfect topper to this story. Epilogue. The following morning, two garbage collectors find the Creepshow comic book in the trash. They look at the ads in the book for X-ray specs and a Charles Atlas bodybuilding course. They also see an advertisement for a voodoo doll, but lament that the order form has already been redeemed. Inside the house, Stan complains of neck pain, which escalates and becomes deadly as Billy repeatedly and gleefully jabs the voodoo doll as he finally gets revenge on his accursed father for his past abuse. So the analysis here, I mean, the, the you know, we get the two trash men pouring over the Creepshow comic book that Tom Atkins had thrown out, one of whom is makeup's artist legend himself, Tom Zavini. Joe Hill gets his revenge on the father by using the voodoo doll in order to pin his father to death. Now, in conclusion, I think that Creepshow is just a fun movie. I have to applaud Romero and King for opting for their decision to go as broadly comic as they do. It allows the audience to have fun with it and never take it too seriously. At the end of the day, they just want to entertain you. But I can understand anyone who thinks that's just a bit too silly and goofy. For me, I appreciate what they're doing, but it's a little bit too over-the-top slapsticky for my taste. Now, when it comes to horror anthologies, my preference uh, lies with Mike Doherty's 2009 love letter to Halloween, Trick or Treat. It uh, takes many a play from King and Romero's book, especially the comic book aspect here. And like Creepshow, it strikes a balance between horrific and humorous. But... I prefer the particular balance that Doherty was able to strike. If you haven't seen Trick or Treat, guys, and I'm talking about Trick or Treat, not Trick or Treat, uh, which is, I don't know, is that the, um, not Rob Zombie, I, I, maybe Gene Simmons might be in it, I don't know, but I've never seen it, but that's not the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about the anthology one. It's great. If you like horror movies and Halloween movies, then this is the one for you. This is my go-to Halloween movie now, and once upon a time it was Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, but now every year I need to make sure that, that I watch um, Trick or Treat. It's just, if you love that season, it, there's no way that um, you're not going to have a smile um, with what uh, Doherty uh, does here. And so I, st I haven't seen Krampus yet. I can't I can't wait to see it, to see what he does for the to the um, Christmas season, what he had already done to the Halloween season with, with Trick or Treat. Um, I'm very excited. And I'm very excited for uh, Trick or Treat 2, whenever that comes out. Um, all right, guys. So that's really all that I have. That's all I have to say about Creepshow. But make sure you stick around for next episode where, naturally, I review Creepshow 2. Um, so, um, until then, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Cast.